Well, as I said before, Romans 12 is one of those passages that everyone should memorize and use it uh, as a pattern for your life because it is such a wonderfully brief statement on how to live as a Christian. Here's what it says. We're going to, verse 1 and 2 really do go together. One's a more positive statement. Two has a, a negative turn to it. We'll look at number two next week. Today we're just going to look at this first verse, which says from God's Word, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Well, Romans, 12, Romans 12 marks a, a, a new section of the book of Romans. Paul is taking all that he has been uh, laying out in the first 11 chapters. And now here in chapter 12 he's beginning to make practical applications. How do we apply all these uh, all this information that he has given us in, verse, in chapters 1 through 11. So 12, 13, 14, 15 especially uh, outline for us how do we live the Christian life out in uh, the normal everyday uh, arenas in which we find ourselves. Well, one of the things that we find here, this is kind of an overarching statement that we find here in chapter uh, 12 verses 1 and 2. Uh, one of the things that we find here and we need to learn from this verse is that we cannot, I cannot, you cannot manipulate God. Now that seems like a, a straightforward statement, but we live in a world where uh, manipulation is common I mean, we're constantly being manipulated, or at least there's an attempt being made to manipulate us. The media is trying to manipulate us to believe certain things they want us to believe. Advertisers are constantly trying to manipulate us to buy things that we don't need. And I got an advertisement this morning, uh, you know, six things you must have for autumn is from a clothing company with a $20 discount. And I don't need those six things, I'm sure. But they are trying to convince me and make me believe that I need those things. But we live in a culture of manipulation. I mean, you're probably getting bombarded with phone calls from people you don't know trying to sell you things you don't need. And they are so crafty, and they will try to scam you. They're always trying to get the upper hand on you. It's easy to become cynical in our world today because of all this manipulation, but... It's, it's part of our human nature. We are natural-born manipulators. Uh, look around at all the ways that we try to manipulate things, and I would, I would suspect that if you work in any area where you deal with people, uh, especially one-on-one, -on -one and, you're, and you're dealing with people's problems, I mean, I can look out and see a, a number of you who in your jobs... Work with people face to face. Uh, teachers, you know, got a lot of teachers in here. I mean, children and students are constantly trying to manipulate their teachers, aren't they? I mean, I did. You know, trying to convince them that 
hey, you know, it wasn't my fault, you know, even though I was caught red-handed, it was somebody else's fault. It was, uh, or, or the problem is, uh, you know, when I, when I lay out my side of the story, I leave out a few details to make you sympathetic to me. That's manipulation. When you see it in children, it's easy to spot. But as they get older, I'm sure Phil can tell us, it becomes a little more uh, sophisticated. Uh, if you're uh, a lawyer or a doctor and you deal with people, sometimes people don't want to tell you the whole truth to get you sympathetic to their side. Or uh, they will play the victim and try to make you feel sorry for them. Or give little time to say, I get all these things. Not so much from the congregation. I'm not, this is not me criticizing anybody sitting here. But, of course, being in the church, we get a lot of people who are calling looking for assistance. And, man, they have some great stories, and I've heard about all of them. And, uh, you know, they're, they'll try to make me feel guilty uh, that, that my actions are, uh, you know, wh- whether I respond to them or not, is, is th- their complete happiness depends upon it. And I don't even know these people, so why is it me? I mean, they're just trying to manipulate, to make me feel sorry for them. Or they must have it now. You know, they've known. Rent comes around every month, right? <laughs> you know, if you call me and you need it in the next hour, uh, that's manipulation. You've known it's coming. You know you need it. Uh, don't call me and say, I need it in 30 minutes or my life is going to end you know, I'm going to get kicked out on the street. Well, as a, as a friend of mine said, you know, an emergency uh, on your part does not, or, or a, a failure to plan on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part. But people do these things naturally, and sometimes people don't even realize that they're doing it. It's just the way they operate. There are some people who are always trying to make you feel sorry for them when they've created such a mess in their lives, but they don't even realize it. They're doing this. There are some people who are constantly exaggerating their problems so that you will feel sorry for them or, or do something for them. Well, I looked at an article and, and it gave me 14 different ways that people manipulate others. And the guy said, this is not an exhaustive list. This is just a, this is just a sample. But it comes naturally to us. It comes naturally to the human heart. And it comes from the Garden of Eden You know, we read it this morning in Sunday school, Genesis chapter 3. You know, uh, Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, and they're hiding from God. They hear him walking in the garden, and so they're they're scrambling because God is showing up. And uh, God calls to Adam, and Adam responds, and he says, You know, I heard you, and I was was afraid because I'm naked. Uh, and, And God says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? of which I commanded you not to eat. The man said, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. That's some blame shifting. That's what we call there. That's manipulation. It's not my fault, God. It's your fault. You gave me the woman and she gave me the fruit and then I ate it. It's your fault. And then, of course, Eve passes it along to the serpent. The serpent gave me the fruit and then I ate it or deceived me and I ate it. Uh, it, be, it became part of human nature for us to, to do all sorts of strategy to get out from under responsibility for our own actions or to, to get people to do things for us. Manipulation is natural. Well, you cannot manipulate God. 
But because it's in our nature, most people, most people deal with God in that way. Most people think about God and Christianity in this way. If I do this, whatever this might be, then God will do that. Or to put it a different way, if I do my part, then God will respond to me and do his part. Well, that's nothing more than manipulation. We're trying to get God to do what we want by doing our part. And anyone who acts this way towards God, there's two avenues. If you believe that about God, that God will only respond to you because of what you do, then two th one of two things will happen. Either you will live in this pattern for a while. You know, I do all these things for God, expecting God to do something for me. Well, one day you're going to be disappointed. And God's not going to do what you think he should be doing for you. Something bad happens in your life. Diagnosed with cancer, or you know that's on my mind because that's happened to my brother here recently. Uh, or, or you know I didn't get the job promotion, or I didn't this didn't happen, or that didn't happen, or this did this something bad happened. Well, God, I'm doing this, this, and this. Why are you doing this to me? I don't deserve this. See, you're thinking of God in a manipulative way that you have done your part. God's not delivering on his part. And people who believe that end up being bitter towards God. I've seen it in a few cases where things aren't going right in someone's life and uh, they're mad at God because they think God owes them something. The other avenue that you might go down, if you think that, you can, that God is one who can be manipulated and act, actually wants to be manipulated is that people reject, people will reject that in hand. They'll say, I don't want to have anything to do with God because, you know, I don't want to play that game with God and I don't want to be beholden to a God who has to be appeased like that. And they become atheists. They reject God in hand. I don't want to play the game. Well, see, both of those responses come from a wrong belief about God. And, and it's a wrong belief that all of us, because of the natural manipulators that we are, we all can fall into that way of thinking rather easily. It comes naturally to us. We tend to think backwards about the gospel. If I do this, then God will do that, even if we know that that's not the truth. It's kind of like a little child. When you tell the child, you know, the child says, me and Billy played football today. And you say, no, you got it backwards. You should say, Billy and I played football today. And if you're like me, who you know, grew up in a small southern town, your family's a bunch of blue-collar workers, and you know, your grammar's not the best, uh, I, I learned it very well in school. But as soon as I, well, you all probably noticed and sometimes when I'm preaching that I slip into bad grammar, but especially, which is why I try to write things out, but especially when I get back around some of my family members and people I grew up with, boy, I get right back into the bad grammar, redneck way of talking. That's kind of a picture of our Christian lives. We can know 
you know, the, the truth, we can know the right way to think about God, that, that God is the giver. He's the one that has done everything initially. He's, he's the one that has provided salvation. We just respond to that. We respond to what he's done. We're not trying to get him to respond to us. He's already done everything. We're just looking for the appropriate response. That's what we need to have. We might know that, and I'll, I'll explain that a bit more in a moment, but we tend to fall back into thinking about it the wrong way, just like I do, just like the little kid who say, oh, well, yes, Johnny and I played football today, but a few days later, John, me and Johnny are playing football today. Again, we fall back into those old habits because it's natural to our sinful self. But the, the fact of the matter is, and what we see here in this passage, is that a true Christian is someone who responds appropriately to God's mercy in Christ. God, God works initially. God does everything out of his mercy that he extends to us. And a true Christian is someone who is just responding to that. We respond to it initially, okay? We have to understand that we're lost, that we are sinners, that we cannot save ourselves through our good works. We cannot manipulate God. We cannot do this, this, and this, and then it's beholden on God to take us to heaven when we die. That's wrong way of thinking. If we think that, we're trying to manipulate God. What we need to think, how, how you are supposed to think about this, and the truth of the matter is that God has provided a way of salvation for sinners because of his mercy, because he's compassionate towards people who are completely lost. And you have to recognize, I'm one of those lost people, and I need a Savior. See, you're responding to something that God has already done. You're, you're responding to him. And it continues on in the Christian life, and that's what Romans 12:1 is talking about. Paul tells us, "By the mercies of God, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, to do something. I want you to look closely at what I've been telling you for the last 11 chapters, where I have been laying out for you the mercy of God, and I want you to respond to that. And there is an appropriate response to that, and that is to present yourself as a living sacrifice to God, to spiritually worship Him in this way. That's what we need to do today. We need to understand gospel logic. If you look at the quote on the front of the bulletin, uh, from Sinclair Ferguson, a book called Devoted to God, it's one of the best books, that, uh, ex, uh, expositions of different passages on sanctification. Extremely, extremely helpful book. But he says, Divine indicatives, statements about what God has done, is doing, or will do, you know, the, those facts about God, about what he's already accomplished for us, what he's promised to do for us in the future, uh, what he has promised to do for us daily. Those divine indicatives... Facts logically proceed and ground divine imperatives, statements about what we are to do in response, the commands of Scripture. 
This is true no matter the actual order in which the indicative and imperative statements appear in any given passage. Thus, who God is, what God has done, is doing, and will do for us, the indicatives, provides the foundation for our response of faith and obedience, imperative. Thus, his grace affects our faithfulness. This is the logic that explains the power of the gospel. See, what this passage is telling us to do is to remember what God has done. Remember his mercy. Everything that he's done is merciful towards us. And he's been spending 11 chapters describing that for us. And as we apprehend, comprehend, and, and just em- embrace and look at all that he has done for sinners such as we are who don't deserve it, that should elicit a response from us. You know, that should make us say, God, you've done everything for me to save me. And what can I do for you? How can I serve you? And the, the response is to give yourself away to him completely. That's the appropriate response. And you think about the, let's, 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 let's make that a practice here this morning. Uh, what has God done for us? Let's think about God's mercies. He's saying, therefore, based on everything I've said before, consider the mercies of God. Reflect upon them. John Stott says, for 11 chapters, Paul has been unfolding the mercies of God. Indeed, the gospel is precisely God's mercy to inexcusable and undeserving sinners. He's described that that's what we are, whether we're Jews or Gentiles, in the chapters 1, 2, and the first half of chapter 3. We are inexcusable and undeserving sinners. Uh, God has been merciful to us in giving his son to die for for them, in justifying them freely by faith, in sending them his life-giving spirit, and in making them his children. In particular, the key word of Romans 9 through 11, that's the section that precedes what we're looking at today, is mercy. He mentions mercy in 9 through 11 on a number of, in a number of verses. Verse 16 of chapter 9. Salvation depends not on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And his purpose is, verse 23, to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy. To be an object of his mercy. What a wonderful phrase. And then in, in chapter 11, uh, he describes further... Uh, As the disobedient Gentiles have have now received mercy, so too disobedient Israel will now receive mercy. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. God is a God of mercy. Without God's mercy, we are lost and hopeless. God had to step in and do something for sinners or else they would be lost for eternity. And he did. And ours is only to respond appropriately to what God has done. In faith, in repentance, recognizing that, yes, I am a sinner. I need what God has done. If not, I'd be lost too. And then as we continue to live the Christian life, to continue to remember. That's when we have the Lord's Supper. That's why we do it every month. So we can do this in remembrance of me. Specifically, remember the sacrifice that I've made for you to save you from your sins. Remember that. 
and present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. So mercy, as we think about God's mercy to sinners such as we are, His divine compassion upon us who are lost, and how He's gone to such great lengths through sending His Son, coming to earth, suffering, dying, bearing the wrath of sin upon Himself on the cross, all that He went through, uh, in his life and death, and then raising him from the dead, and then giving the Spirit to us and adopting us into his family, making us his children. These are wonderful things that God has done for sinners such as we are. How do you respond to that? Faith, repentance, a living sacrifice. Look at, uh, look at this call to worship today. You might have thought, well, that's a strange call to worship. Psalm 50. Verse 12 through 15, God says to his people, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? What he's talking about is their sacrifices. You know, I don't, I don't need your sacrifices, God says. I'm not dependent upon your sacrifices. God is not dependent upon your works at all. But what does he want? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God wants your heart. He wants, uh, you to, to, he wants to be in a love relationship with you. He's done everything to make that possible and he's asking you to just give yourself back to him. That's what he wants, a living sacrifice. He calls it spiritual worship. And that means, well, first of all, let's look at living sacrifice. A living sacrifice is not a dead sacrifice, obviously. He's not talking about you know, killing yourself on the altar like you would a bull or a goat. He's talking about living sacrificially to the Lord, giving yourself to the Lord completely, sacrificing your ways for his ways, committing yourself to him. This is spiritual worship. That's an interesting word that... Some, some uh, verses translate it reasonable. And it, it has to do with the heart, really. Uh, spiritual, reasonable, something that's inside. that comes from the inside and, and is expressed outwardly. You know, there's something, there's something called dead orthodoxy. You can do all the right things, you know, outwardly, but for all the wrong reasons. You can just go through the motions in your life. But what he's calling for, to, to, to out of a sheer apprehension of the mercy of God and giving yourself away for all that, that God has done for you, he's saying that, that response is a heart response. It's something that has come from your inner being. It's not just an outward uh, service is flowing out of a great love for the Lord. That's what he's looking for. True thanksgiving from the heart for all that God has done for us. God wants right practice from the heart. That's what he's looking for. He wants a a relationship with you, a love relationship. And he wants you to do that in your body. He says, give your body a living sacrifice. Why does he say a body? Because that's where it's lived out. It's not lived out in your head. 
You know, you need to have your head engaged, and we'll talk about that next week in verse 2 because it talks about your mind, renewing your mind. But he uses the word body because he wants you to flesh it out, to live it out in your daily lives, wherever you go. Christianity is lived out in the physical realm as it flows from the heart. And one thing we need to understand about this is it doesn't come naturally to us. You'll notice that Paul says here, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. I appeal to you. I urge you, if you're looking at the NIV or the New American Standard, I beseech you, brothers, if you're looking at the King James Version. Paul has spent 11 chapters laying out the mercy of God, and he still has to say, I urge you, I I beseech you, I appeal to you to look at that and then respond appropriately. One would think that if you heard verses, chapters 1 through 11 and really grasped what Paul was talking about, that you wouldn't even have to think about it, that, yes, I'm going to give my life away to the Lord. But Paul says, no, I've got to urge this on you. Because, like I said before, like little children, we forget we forget or take for granted the mercy of God. So we must continuously appeal to the mercies of God. That's my job, to continue to remind you week to week of the mercy and love of God and what he's done for you. And we must do it as individual believers day by day. Preach the gospel to ourselves. Remember Christ. Spend time in his word. Spend time in prayer, in a relationship with him appealing to ourselves to remember God and what he's done for us and let that fuel our service to him. Let it make us put ourselves on the altar for the Lord. Living sacrifices have a tendency to crawl off the altar because they're living. They don't want to be there. They don't want to be sacrificed. So how are you responding to God? Have you made the appropriate response to the mercy that God has extended towards sinners? Have you recognized that you need his mercy? That's the first step. To recognize that that I need the Lord and I need this, this gracious work that Christ has done. I need that to be applied to my life. I want to ask you to do that today if you've never put your trust in the Lord. And all of us who have done that, let us continuously remember the mercy of God. To be like Isaac Watts, uh, who wrote the famous hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, the last verse says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small. You know, if I owned everything in the world and gave it to God, that, that's not enough. That's not, that's not even what God wants. He, he, God actually owns it all. He owns the cattle of a thousand hills. He doesn't need everything. He already owns it. With the whole realm of nature and mind, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Wonderful summation of what Romans 12, verse 1 is all about. When we look at the, the amazing love of God, the amazing mercy that he's extended to sinners such as we are, the only appropriate response is our souls, our life, and our all.
Let's pray together. Lord, grant us grace to be living sacrifices. Help us apprehend in our hearts what you have done for us, the great sacrifice that you have made on our behalf. And help us to never take that for granted, though we do and we will. But Lord, bring us back time and again to the cross, to remember, to see, to be broken by what you have done for us, to recognize our total inability and to know that you want to make us into something that looks just like Christ. And I pray that you would do that today. If there is anyone here, Lord, who doesn't know you, I pray that they would cry out to you and recognize that, yes, they, they are a sinner. They need your mercy. And, Lord, we pray that all, all would know that if they call upon your name, that you will not cast them aside, but that you will save them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.